Welcome back to TanakhCast. This is episode 87. We'll begin with a brief summation of chapters 20 through 23 in the second book of Kings and follow with a consideration of the politics of archaeology. I probably didn't make much of his introduction in the last episode, but Yeshayahu's in the house! We have a new prophet on the scene, Yeshayahu ben Amotz, who will be bending the ear of the king of Judah on the daily. Not only does he have the king's ear, he also seems to have one of the king's rooms because he serves as an official advisor to the king. And spoilers, he's also the subject of the next book in the series, the first book of the latter prophets. But we'll get more into that in the next episode. For now, Yeshayahu comes to Chizkiyahu at his sickbed with some great bedside manner. Quote, Thus said the Lord, Charge your household, for you are about to die, and you will not live. Well, Chizkiyahu turns his face to the wall. He's devastated because he's been a really good king, following God's commandments and all that. So God tells Yeshayahu to go back to the king and reverse himself. I'm not dead. What? Nothing. Here's your nine I'm not dead. Here. He says he's not dead. Yes, he is. I'm not. He isn't? Well, he will be soon. He's very ill. I'm getting better. No, you're not. You'll be stone dead in a moment. So that's what Yeshayahu does. He goes back and gives Chizkiyahu a spoiler-filled report how he'll be king for 15 more years and how God will save him from the Assyrians. And then Yeshayahu asks for a clump of figs and proceeds to cure the king. Then they have this odd exchange about the science of shadows. If the sun is above you, one would expect the shadows to extend away and down. But when Yeshayahu performs another miracle and the shadows seems to be cast up and behind, it proves the validity of God's words to the king. Later, when the Babylonians send emissaries to Chizkiyahu, Chizkiyahu greets them like friends. They have a common enemy, after all, Assyria, and nothing terrible is supposed to happen to him during his reign. So he gives the Babylonians a grand tour, showing them everything in the palace. Yeshayahu sees the king with the envoys and tells the king faithfully that in the future these men will take everything and nothing will remain. Chizkiyahu's reply, quote, The word of the Lord that you have spoken is good. Which is kind of a strange reply. I mean, the prophet just told you that the future of Judah is to be found under the boot of the Babylonians, and you're like, whoa, that sounds great. But the king isn't really being rueful at all, because he goes on and thinks to himself, quote, why, there will be peace and trust in my days. Meaning, it sounds wonderful because I'll be dead by the time all that terrible stuff happens. This seems to be a common refrain for kings. Before Chizkiyahu dies, he undertakes a water reclamation project and digs what the Israeli tour ministry calls Hezekiah's Tunnel, or the Siloam Tunnel, which twists and turns for 533 meters underground from outside the city walls to a pool inside it. Chapter 21 begins with 12-year-old Menashe assuming the throne after Chizkiyahu's death. The Babylonians have yet to despoil Jerusalem, but it probably would have been better had they done so, because Menashe rolls back all of his father's religious reforms and even expands the idolatry in Judah to unparalleled levels. God is angry and sends an unnamed prophet to tell the king as much, but the king really just doesn't care, and since nothing terrible happens to him, he doesn't care even more, and then he dies. 
Menashe's heir Amon takes over, he's as wicked as his father, and is assassinated. And the assassins are then assassinated, which paves the way for Yoshia, Amon's son, to take over. Yoshia returns to the ways of David and his great-grandfather and initiates what the text calls Bedek Habait, a top-to-bottom inspection for the purpose of repair and restoration of the temple. It's during this inspection that a Sefer Torah, a book of teaching, is discovered and brought to the king. Scholars believe this Sefer Torah to be the book of Deuteronomy. When the book is read out to the king by his scribe Shaphan, Yoshia is devastated by what he hears. He hears of God's commandments, and more to the point, he hears of God's wrath and all the punishments that will befall sinners. Yoshia tears his cloak. He knows Judah is doomed if it continues on its present path, so he sets out to make a change. He sends some high officials to Huldah the prophet, the only female prophet mentioned in both books of Kings. She tells the messengers that God sees Yoshia's sincerity and will stay his hand. God will destroy Judah, but Yoshia will not live to see it. And there's that thing again, the consolation prize of knowing you'll be dead before the terrible things happen. I guess from a purely selfish perspective, that's kind of a consolation. Anyway, this doesn't deter Yoshia, who calls for a people's convention and a public reading of the Sefer Torah in the presence of God and man. He pledges his loyalty to God, sealing a covenant with the people as well. He orders the priests to purge the temple of all idolatrous relics and the land of all idolatrous worship, including sacred poles, altars, the male cult harlot houses, the high places, the incense burners, the tofet site where people would pass their sons through the fire in the Valley of Hinnom to the god Molech. He even smashes the altar at Beit El, the one originally built by Yeravam ben Nevat over a century before, as an alternative worship site to Jerusalem. The purge lasts until Pesach, when Yoshia commands the people to observe the festival as it was described in the Sefer Torah. But as the text is wrapping up its account of Yoshia's reign, complimenting him on his scrupulous adherence to commandments and the consumption of kosher for Pesach macaroons, it's not enough to stay God's hand. God will smite Judah. And in a battle against Egyptian pharaoh Necho on the slopes of Har Megiddo, Yoshia falls. And the people anoint Yoshia's son Yehoahaz as king, but Necho, sensing that Yehoahaz would continue to resist Egypt, arrests the new king and installs Yehoiakim, also a son of Yoshia and probably more pliable, as king over Judah. And Yehoiakim is also a no-good bum, just like his grandfather. Thus endeth the summation and beginneth the consideration. In the 2016 novel Judenstadt, Simon Zelich posits an alternative universe where in 1948 a Jewish state is established not in Palestine, but in Saxony, East Germany. This book and books like Philip Roth's The Plot Against America or Michael Chabon's The Yiddish Policeman's Union or Philip K. Dick's The Man in the High Castle succeed in answering the big what if. That is, they create a rich textured world that is very familiar and similar to ours, but because of one different outcome, it's altogether different. What if Lindbergh defeats Roosevelt? What if the Zionists lose in Palestine and the Jews live in Alaska? What if the Nazis win the war? You get the idea. 
So despite the alternate universe setting of Judenstadt, the different locale, the different language, the different historical figures, the challenges facing that country are all too familiar. There's an indigenous population who denies that the Jews have any claim to the land. There are insecure borders with neighbors whose hostility erupts into periodic violence. There's Cold War politics and internecine fighting between secular and religious Jews. One of the formative experiences that Judenstadt's protagonist, Judith Ginsburg-Klemmer, has as a youth is Summer's at archaeology camp. Good morning, campers! North American Jews send their kids to the interior to paddle in canoes and sleep in cabins and canoodle with their Jewish peers. Parents in Judenstadt send their kids to the interior to, among other things, unearth the Jewish past. It's not really that strange of a pursuit if you think about it. For the Jews of Ashkenaz, their roots in the land go back over a thousand years. The first Jews to arrive in the Rhine Valley in the heart of Ashkenaz came with Charlemagne in the 800s, although Jews had been settling in parts of Europe under Roman imperial rule centuries before that. The same is equally true for Sephardic Jews who arrived in Spain probably even earlier, sometime in the first century CE. Had Ferdinand and Isabella accepted Don Yitzchak of Barbanel's bribe in 1492, the Jews of Iberia might have never been expelled and thus remained in their ancestral homeland well into the 21st century. Now that's a novel waiting to be written. All of this is to say that Judith spends her summers digging in the German dirt to unearth the Jewish past for the singular purpose of demonstrating how deep Jewish roots go in Saxony and that the Jews had as much claim to the land as any other person, even more so. In Judenstadt, archaeology was in the service of ideology, one that sought to support and scientifically prove, you see those air quotes, scientifically prove a political claim. We've been here a very, very long time, and even though you think we don't belong here, we do, and we should be in charge. Sound familiar? It's difficult to think about archaeology as being in service to ideology. How can the very scientific practices of excavating, surveying, cataloging, naming, mapping, and exhibiting be somehow tainted by politics? It's like saying medicine is somehow colored by ideology or physics is a slave to politics. But there are some very serious people who would make that argument about medicine and physics, and there are even more who would venture similar claims about archaeology. This, many folks have argued, is especially critical in specific contexts like Jerusalem, where the historic city is a flashpoint of conflict between Israeli Jews and Palestinians. Both claim the city as their own. Both claim to have roots in the city's history. Both also claim that the other's claims are not as serious as theirs. Which reminds me... When I was a younger lad in the previous century, one of my favorite places to go in Jerusalem was Nikbat Hashiloach, or as the sign said in English, the Siloam Pool. We would pile into my aunt's fiat and wend our way down from French Hill near Mount Scopus through Wadi Joz behind the Rockefeller Museum and along the eastern wall of the old city to what today is called Derech Hashiloach. It would take about 25 minutes or so. My aunt would simply pull up, practically at the entrance to the tunnel. She'd park the car, yank on the parking brake, and we'd pile out onto the gravel. As we walked over to the entrance, she would hand each of us kids a candle, and we would descend the roughly hewn stone steps into the dark to walk in the wet with lit candles in hand. As we walked, the ice-cold water would reach our ankles, rise to mid-calf, and in some spots it would reach our knees. 
The tunnel would twist and turn, the ceiling often above my head, but in spots we'd all have to crouch a little to continue onward, and then we'd emerge into the sunlight where a small pool was flanked by a staircase leading up and back onto the road. It was about six meters into this tunnel that the Shiloh inscription was discovered. If you want to see what the inscription actually looks like, I threw up a link at thenextjew.com. The tunnel had been discovered by the legendary biblical scholar Edward Robinson in 1838, but the inscription went unnoticed by him as well as by Charles Wilson and Charles Warren, the famous British duo of Bible geeks who have various archaeological sites named after them. It was actually discovered by a kid in 1880 who was having a bit of a swim in the tunnel, and he kind of noticed the inscription. The inscription is in Paleo-Hebrew and describes the work of the tunnel diggers in the final moments before the work teams reached each other somewhere in the middle. But the inscription, which now resides in the Istanbul Archaeology Museum, raises more questions than an answer, such as, when was it written? Why was it situated inside the tunnel as opposed to its entrance? Why does it not include the name of the person or the leader who sponsored the dig? And why won't the Turks give it back to us? You bastards! You vicious, heartless bastards! What I didn't appreciate then was where the tunnel entrance and exit were located, the village of Silwan, in what the locals refer to as East Jerusalem. I also didn't appreciate that the tunnel snaked its way under what archaeologists called Ir David, the city of David, the core of ancient Jerusalem, its most ancient nucleus, its Iron Age heart. Ir David is where the story begins when you talk about Jerusalem as the Jewish capital. One can almost imagine David displaying his star there for the first time, from banners and flags and posters commemorating his defeat to the Philistine Goliath. I mean, could you imagine living in an apartment down the street from that, sitting on your balcony having a coffee and casually pointing and saying, oh yeah, you, you see that tree over there? That That's where our nation as a political entity got its start. Right? No, right there. No, 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 not not the one next to the streetlight, the, the next one over. Yeah, that one. Ancient Jerusalem, be it within the walls of the old city, or in the case of Ir David outside of it, is an archaeological site of national importance. It's the capital of modern Israel as well as the ancient kingdom of Judah. It includes within it a sizable population of Palestinians, for whom it also serves as an aspirational capital. In the case of Ir David, it's a stone's throw away from the Temple Mount, or Haram al-Sharif, if you, if you have a really good arm and you're throwing downhill from the Haram, which is also a flashpoint of religious and political conflict. But there's also a former international frontier around there as well. East Jerusalem, before 1967, used to be part of Jordan. It includes 28 villages and neighborhoods that were annexed to Israel after the Six-Day War. The site of Ir David was included as part of the Jerusalem Walls National Park in 1974, even though, as I said, it's outside the walls and a significant distance away. About 400,000 people visit Ir David each year. The site has remains dating back about 7,000 years, including a temporary seasonal settlement from the 3rd millennium BCE around the area's only spring, the Gihon, where the kings of Judah were once anointed, as well as remains from the early Canaanite Bronze Age, Israelite Iron Age, Babylonian and Persian periods, the Hasmonean and Herodian periods, in short, Ir David has it all. And although it is under the official auspices of the Nature and Parks Authority, Ir David itself is run by the Ir David Foundation, or otherwise known as El Ad, which is a private nonprofit organization whose stated goals are to create a Jewish majority in Palestinian neighborhoods in East Jerusalem and renew the Jewish community in Ir David, which is part of Silwan. 
The foundation seeks to achieve these goals through tourism, education, buying up homes to house new Jewish residents, and... You guessed it, archaeological excavations. Now you might be wondering how someone could use archaeological excavation for political purposes. Well, here's a basic primer. First, archaeology is not an abstract field of study. It happens on a physical site. Often that site is uninhabited or remote, and no one has any ownership claims to the site itself. Sometimes the site is privately owned, and a dig might happen because the owner wants to build or improve on the site somehow. And this is what usually happens in Jerusalem when a homeowner wants to underpin a basement or a developer wants to put in a parking lot. Sometimes, however, there is a dig in a public space which has an impact on the community. In each context, the dig has the potential of changing how the space is used. And context matters. Because, for example, a poor community might see the sudden appearance of archaeologists as a kind of invasion. You know, basic and structure could be lacking, but suddenly folks show up with equipment for some other purpose that has nothing to do with improving their lives. So let's consider what's going on in Silwan. There is a dig going on in the Givati parking lot, which is used by Silwan's residents. It's been going on and off since 2003. Another dig at the Gijon Spring has been going on since 1995. As the dig expanded to include other adjoining areas, it disrupted access between two parts of the neighborhood. So imagine you've been working on that dig at Gijon, right? You've been working there for maybe 10, 20 years. What's your relationship like with the local folks, the Palestinians? You come there every day for more than a decade. You're in and out of basically these people's front yards. Do you invite them in to look around at what you're doing? Do they have free access to the national park, which is expanding all around them? Because the folks who live in Beit She'an do. But then again, those folks are Israeli Jews. And, and how about the tourists? How many are traipsing around their neighborhood? Are the residents part of the tour? Or are they summarily ignored? Or are they regarded as a nuisance? And if you pour development money into the area, will it also benefit the residents or just make the tourists have a better tourist experience? The way one answers these questions is wholly dependent on who is paying for the dig and why. In the case of Silwan, the government kicks in some cash, but the bulk of the money comes from El Ad, who, as we said, their express goal is to expand the Jewish footprint in Palestinian East Jerusalem. So it's in their interests to grow the boundaries of the national park in the area and to bolster use of the national park as an educational tool. To demonstrate to all comers, soldiers, tourists, whoever, how deep Jewish roots are in the area, and that therefore it should return to being a Jewish area. El Ad has been making this argument since 1991, and a lot of people inside and outside the government have been listening. So, when British Bible geek Charles Warren comes in the 19th century and identifies a specific area on the southern slopes of the Temple Mount as the biblical city of David where David peeped on Bathsheba, and Shlomo passed out his famous judgment, and Chizkiyahu turned his face to the wall and cry, it then becomes the standard identification for an area much larger than Warren originally identified. You can see how what should strictly be an archaeological inquiry becomes part of a political mission creep to occupy and annex. And what happens when the area identified as Jewish has no Jewish remains? Does it then debunk the whole story that the guides have been telling the tourists? Should we then lower the flag from the pole, fold it up, and go home? <laughs> and what if remains from another earlier period are uncovered? Does the area then belong to them? 
even if they've been dead for 5,000 years. And it's not as if archaeologists can dig something up and give definitive explanations about what they found that everyone agrees with. Archaeologists, too, are caught up in academic struggles, personal feuds, as well as team disputes, such as the one raging between the biblical minimalists and the maximalists, with the latter arguing that the biblical story is more or less correct. So where does that leave us? Well, it leaves us neck deep in the conflict. But that's okay. Now we know the kind of game we're playing. It's like, you know, when you start asking questions and some folks say, why are you bringing politics into this? The second they say that, you know that politics have always been in this, just not your politics. Now that you're aware, the real struggle begins. If you like what you heard today, spread the word about TanakhCast. Send a friend an email to say, hey, you should check out TanakhCast. Or like TanakhCast at the show pages on Facebook or Google+. Or write a brief review at the iTunes Store, Google Play, Stitcher Smart Radio, or SoundCloud. It's a small thing, really, but it will help other people find TanakhCast. Or if you want to help in a bigger way, support us at Patreon. Just search for TanakhCast and pledge your shekels, either on a one-time or monthly basis, and receive special blessings from the Most High. I thank you in advance for that, and encourage you to join us again in two weeks for... Episode 88, when we conclude the second book of Kings with chapters 24 and 25.